Welcome to Lost in the Movie. This episode is covering the film Boyhood. This is part of an overall Ethan Hawke overview that I'm doing throughout uh, 2020. It started with the Before Trilogy, and here we continue the theme with Richard Linklater and uh, Ethan Hawke collaboration, but a different character this time, which we'll discuss. You're always invited to share feedback with me, either in the comments for this on iTunes or uh, on Twitter, on my website, lostinthemovies.com, or you can email me at movieman0283 at gmail.com, and I'll share your feedback as soon as I get it. I love to hear what people think of these particular films, if they agree, disagree, or find something interesting that I said or that I left out. I'd love to start the discussion with these. Since the last episode of this podcast was posted, I've mostly been focused on my Patreon. I put up an episode covering Sunset Boulevard as Twin Peaks Cinema, so comparing that Billy Wilder 50s film to uh, the show Twin Peaks, which seems like an odd comparison at first. One is out in the woods, sort of mystical. The other one is in Hollywood, uh, dealing with actors and writers. But there are some obvious similarities in the names and the influences, and then some more subtle ones, too, that were fun to explore. I also offered an update on my Journey Through Twin Peaks video series. So if you've been waiting for more video chapters of that, hopefully coming in September, and I give a whole uh, detailed outlay of what's expected through the fall and the winter with that. I also covered Twin Peaks characters, locations, and storylines on there, the characters of Ludwig and Sternwood, the locations of One-Eyed Jacks and Partyland, and the storyline of Hank's activities, which I connected to part 10 of Twin Peaks Season 3. So if you're a Twin Peaks novice, as I always say, all of that probably means nothing to you, but maybe it'll encourage you to get into that show. It's something I cover a lot on my site and elsewhere, in addition to, of course, all the movies. I also did a Lost in Twin Peaks episode, covering a whole episode in detail on episode 18 of the series. That's for my $5 a month patrons. And I opened up the previous Lost in Twin Peaks a coverage of episode 12 for all patrons. So that's what I've been up to uh, in late August, uh, going into early September. Now for this episode for Boyhood, I'm going to be doing something a little different than usual. Part of it is going to be a specifically composed for podcast review that I recorded last year. And the other part is going to be a reading series from something I wrote uh, back in 2014, right when the film came out, I reviewed it as part of a larger essay on maturity and films about growing up, uh, another film, The Giver, and uh, I had a part of it that was just a review of Boyhood, so I thought I should share that uh, as part of my podcast that I recorded for this. And part of the reason for that is Boyhood is a film about changes over time, which is a subject that utterly fascinates me. And actually, after even this review was recorded, I put up a post in late 2019 called Seven American Generations, where I made these sort of collages of imagery to show the different generations that are still alive today, from like the lost generation to whether you want to call them Zoomers or I generation or whatever, which uh, I think the boy in the film is sort of on the cusp of that younger generation and like the youngest millennials, which I talk about a little in this review. But you can really see my interest in transformations over time and what age someone is at what point, getting into kind of the weeds of that in this post, which I'll link up below, Seven American Generations. And I'll also, of course, link up the full essay that this boyhood review was originally a part of. So here you're going to get part of it, me reading 
so it'll sound a little different, and then me talking more extemporaneously as part of the podcast, and just looking how the film itself evolved, or how we look at that film and the era that it takes place in differently between 2014 and 2019. I think even a year later in 2020, with the pandemic, with all the political stuff going on, and just the fact that this, this is the year millennials turn first, the oldest millennials turn 40, so you know, the even the demographics of who's the youngest generation, who's in middle age and so forth is, is evolving too. And and this is also something I'd love to hear back from people on if you have any thoughts on generations and eras and the particular generation and era depicted in this film. Really all of the Bush era into the Obama era, if you want to look at it by presidents, a lot of other stuff going on then too, and how that looks in light of today. You know, what would a boyhood sequel look like maybe? <laughs> Put the barrier up. I don't want to be your hero. <laughs> I don't want to be a big man. I just want to fight. You guys ready to have some fun? Yeah! yeah! Don't worry about it. Looks like I can use the bumpers. You don't want the bumpers. Life doesn't give you bumpers. We have a new student joining us today. Hey, dude. Welcome to the suck. When the first whispers of Richard Linklater's boyhood reached my ears, or rather my eyes, since I heard about it on Twitter, I knew I would like it. Shot sporadically over an entire decade, the film anchors its universal coming-of-age tale in a very specific place, rural and suburban Texas, and time, the post-9-11 era. On screen, we simultaneously watch Mason, the character, and Eller Coltrane, the actor, grow from 7 to 18. While widely acclaimed, this novel approach has also been called a gimmick, implying that novelty masks an uninteresting story. But the approach is the story. In Boyhood, Mason provides the eyes through which we'll see his small corner of the world, but he is not necessarily, at least not always, our subject. The film glides through a series of closely linked events in the characters' lives before leaping forward another year or so. Its transitions are abrupt rather than gradual. In later years, these events cluster ever closer around Mason's personal life, and other characters become more peripheral. Appropriately enough, this occurs in the period where adolescence offers Mason greater agency. But in the earlier passages, Mason seems to be an audience rather than an actor in his own life. His mother's determined work, his father's careless charisma, and his older sister's antic energy all hold the screen and drive the narrative in a way that the glum, quiet, an often frustrated little boy does not. This is one of the ironies of the title. At times, we don't seem to be witnessing the boy's story at all, but rather those of the family members around him. This is a function of Mason's personality, as well as his age. Like many a Linklater hero, he is thoughtful and observant. Unlike most Linklater heroes, he is not particularly loquacious, at least not until the last few passages catch him spouting semi-ironic incantations about cyborg conquest, along with some more typically angsty soul-searching. Such reticence marks Mason both as the ideally calm center in a constantly shifting narrative and something of a dramatic cipher. Fortunately, the rest of the ensemble is more colorful, dynamic, and or charming. Though the parents are simply designated mom and dad in the cast listings, neither they nor the characters, the other characters, are limited by their relationship to Mason, even as they are framed by it. For example, when a college-bound Mason cavalierly burns his bridges to childhood, his mother, Patricia Arquette, breaks down in tears. The frustrated impromptu speech which follows is alternately funny and touching. While Mason apparently regards her outburst as an aberrant, discomforting revelation, we don't. 
We understand and sympathize with her sorrow and exasperation because we've been watching her life, not just his, unfold over 11 years. Meanwhile, Ethan Hawke exhibits roguish charm as the boy's lax father, a man who initially pops in and out of his children's lives seemingly on a whim, yet whose betrayal and abandonment are felt more keenly by Mason when he remarries and becomes more settled. We feel invigorated by the dad's presence, yet sharply aware, in a way Mason may only vaguely be, of his irresponsibility, especially compared to Mason's mom, who bears the brunt of raising two children and sacrificing her own youth in the process. As for bratty sibling Samantha, Linklater's own daughter Lorelei, she can be as invigorating as she is exasperating, an assertive overachiever whose self-certainty provides a nice yin to Mason's drifting, contemplative yang. Surly stepdads Bill, Marco Perella, and Jim, Brad Hawkins, offer initially hopeful and eventually antagonistic energy for Mason to react to, while vivacious girlfriend Sheena, Zoe Graham, finally draws him out of his shell, only to leave him vulnerable and bitter when it turns out she's not the one. With all of these characters, we are aware of but not bound by their flaws. What presents itself to Mason as irritation or admiration unfolds in more complex fashion before our own vision, thanks to Linklater's approach. His camera generally observes without judging, except perhaps when it comes to the boy's drunken, overbearing stepfathers, and even they are allowed, initially, to make more discordantly cordial impressions. In noting Mason's limitations, I don't mean to underplay his importance nor criticize Coltrane's performance. Linklater took a risk casting a seven-year-old who would eventually have to carry the film as a young man, but it paid off. When I speak of seeing the film through his eyes, I'm being literal as well as figurative. Coltrane's piercing, expressive baby blues offer a window to his soul, the way words usually do in Linklater's work. The eyes also provide a striking visual counterpoint to the driven, occasionally unreflective characters flitting across the screen. The conceit of anchoring the film around Mason is subtly but brilliantly executed. Despite our attachment to other characters, I can recall hardly any moment in which the boy himself isn't present. Linklater, both through his films and in interviews, appears to be the epitome of laid-back nonchalance, the calm craftsman of hangout movies, an avatar of relaxation rather than rigor. His breakthrough film, after all, was the aptly named Slacker. Yet so many Linklater films, including that very breakthrough, are defined by very specific, often complex, and frequently restrictive structures, approaches which inherently impose discipline on the material. Both Slacker and Waking Life carve out relay-like dramatic paths, canals within which their streams of consciousness can flow. Before sunrise, before sunset, and before midnight, contract themselves within tight temporal limits in the individual films, but also stretch themselves across decades when taken as a trilogy in which the situations echo while the characters evolve. And now Boyhood offers Linklater his most simultaneously constricting and liberating approach, freeing itself of the pressure, but binding itself by the passage, of time. All these films, with their goals, restrictions, and larger concepts, offer a space within which Linklater can savor unique character moments and cultivate mood. A small but significant moment in Boyhood occurs in Mason's first home, stripped of possessions as the family moves out. The little boy stands in a doorway and erases the marks which have measured his growth since infancy. This is a wonderfully poignant image, at once appropriate and ironic. Most obviously, Linklater is slyly contradicting the direction his own film will head in. Mason may erase these primitive markings, but what is the movie if not a multi-layered, meditative version of that very wall chart? Yet the image resonates with sadness as well. We sense that little Mason at seven is already learning how the past slides away from us, and that the present isn't just about collecting moments, it's about losing them. 
The soon-to-be-erased wall chart is a visual antecedent of the mother's climactic speech, an image of melancholy loss providing a warmer yet more acutely painful incarnation of that bitter verbal despair. Linklater also recognizes the liberation inherent in this loss. If losing these moments robs characters of comfort, it also allows them to be unburdened by the dead weight of the past. This is how Boyhood connects most provocatively with the zeitgeist, suggesting that as we lose our security, we gain our freedom. From there, that review continues on to discuss The Giver, and then I go into a bunch of uh, just sort of... It was supposed to be a more ambitious essay, responding to uh, including those reviews in an overall response to A.O. Scott and Andrew O'Hehor, who had been going back and forth. The two of them were going back and forth about the meaning of adulthood in 2014, death of adulthood. It ended up being more of a piecemeal uh, essay, where I had one section on the films, one section on that, and then I did a whole section where I just kind of listed off. Uh, I had a bunch of images that I was going to use in the essay that didn't quite cohere, so I just kind of showed them and put a description next to them. These are images of showing my obsession with people aging over time, like I did all these sketches when I was a teenager of the same characters, and I would modify them slightly and then more dramatically over the years to show what they looked like at, say, uh, the 44 in 1970 versus 73 in 1999. That If you enjoy that sort of thing, check out the link below, and you can read the whole essay and experience that whole context that I put it in. Now, from today's standpoint... I think uh, Boyhood itself, uh, not just the early eras it depicts, but even the end of the film, it kind of represents something I was thinking about recently, actually, while watching Inside Out as well, the, the Pixar film that came out in 2015. I would call it like sort of upper middle class professional optimism of the Obama era, where people who were making films, uh, I think, had this hopeful impression of the world of progress, basically, but a certain type of technocratic kind of progress. Okay, I'm, I'm stretching that for boyhood. That fits much more for Inside Out. But I do think both films have this Obama-era optimism to them. You know, the film ends with him going off to college, dropping acid in the desert, and it's like, hey, you know, we're free. What, what, what do we want to do with this freedom? And I'm not so sure the film would end in the same way today or be suffused with the same kind of spirit or energy. I, I have to wonder about that. As far as Ethan Hawke goes, this is a great, a great film to watch in the context of looking over several films throughout his whole career because, of course, it's in a way it's several films in one. You've got like short films about each period, usually every couple years or so. But we get to see him as his 90s Gen X, young young person, little older but not much, maybe 30 at most, with a couple young kids, but he's still footloose and fancy free. He goes off to Alaska. He's playing music. This cool guy, dad, pops in and out of his kid's life, as I said in the review. And then in the later part, you're seeing him... Uh, I don't want to analogize it too much with later Hawk personas, because I actually think this is a little different, but you are seeing a more settled... Uh, mature adult figure and whatever he is and you know first reformed usually a little bit more on edge than that uh, he is very much like somebody an older person somebody in early middle age who's no longer got that carefree youthful attitude so you're seeing him age on screen as you are all the characters but I think it's an interesting segue 
from his persona in the 90s, which, to be fair, he had a lot of diverse roles then, but he did have a certain image, and then moving it towards something else in the end. So I mentioned there was some criticism of the film. I mean, it seems unrepresentative to cite that because this was a ridiculously acclaimed film like this just got across the board i think it's rotten tomato score was almost perfect and then of course there was whenever something like that happens there's some disgruntledness and i think some fair i mean i even expressed in my review i didn't find the main character all that compelling i remember kevin b lee did a video too where he criticized the style of film and said it's basically cinematic norm core which is not a good thing and there is this aggressively normal vibe of like we're not going to be too pronounced with anything here we're going to be very just kind of laid back and observational about what's going on but not not in like a really immersive like mike lee kind of observational way it's as i said the conceit of the film is the point of it however people also felt they didn't like the universal the universalizing aspects of the film and certainly the critical reaction to it. So this was a piece called Black Boyhood is Always Black First, Boy Later by Theo Bugby, in which they kind of nailed down some of my own reservations about this character and the romanticization of him versus some of the other characters in the film who I thought were a little more interesting. Uh, She writes, Boyhood becomes a chronicle of two children growing together across the generational divide into adulthood. If Mason Sr. is any indication, the adolescence that his son faces could persist for decades, and Linklater doesn't really seem to mind. If the point was to create a pay-on to mediocrity, then Linklater has made maybe the definitive work on the subject. The cold play opener, Mason Jr.'s off-center black-white photographs of traffic lights, Linklater's own pedestrian compositions, it all adds up to a whole, but I think maybe not the one Linklater intended. As a treatise on the essential vacuity of the white liberal male, boyhood is a staggering achievement. As a portrait of childhood in America, it is incomplete enough to be irresponsible. With one eye closed, it's easy to find myself in the vague banalities of boyhood. My parents reading Harry Potter, my homework shoved into the bottom of my backpack, my family's Obama sign painted in the yard. But with both eyes open, it's clear that if I want to go searching for myself, I'm better off looking elsewhere. Innovation is a poor substitute for insight, at least where boyhood is concerned. So uh, the premise of her article, she's comparing it to uh, the documentary film American Promise by Joe Brewster and Michelle Stevenson, which is about black students at like a mostly white private school. It documents them over many years as well. I think it's definitely fair to criticize the idea that boyhood is universal. And I think probably its strengths are where it does dare to be uh, particular and enjoy that particular moment in a, in a larger context. For me, innovation may not be a substitute for insight, but I really do feel like just the actual process of watching somebody age in itself is interesting enough for me that I think the film is pretty good overall, but even if it wasn't, that would be enough to make me really excited and want to see it. Maybe that's just me, but I mean, I've I've demonstrated enough times on this podcast that that's kind of an obsession of mine, seeing the passage of time. One last note on this too is for me, uh, speaking on that very subject, it was fascinating to watch because as I talked about the before films, I'm 10 years younger than those characters. I'm 10 years older than this character. Uh, actually more than 10 years, probably 13 or 14 years older than him. So I'm watching this era I lived through, through eyes that are seeing it uh, in a different way, the way that I would have seen, say, the 90s. This character is seeing the 2000s, this time that for me was a time of disillusionment with the world and everything and society and all of that stuff that you often go through in your youth, but particularly when your youth coincides with the, the Bush administration, the Iraq war and all of that, he's experiencing as a child seeing the world for the first time. So I found that fascinating. 
fascinating. And it was one of the first opportunities, I think, to see that in a film because, you know, I was 30 when it came out. So I really, up until that point, I had been the younger generation. And now there was something else coming along that represented a slightly skewed version of that. Mom. Have you been partying? A little bit. Oh, okay. Where do you want to be, Mason? What do you want to do? This is just a reminder to uh, rate and review and subscribe on iTunes if you enjoy this podcast. That's how other people get to see it. It very much uh, promotes it in their, their algorithm, I guess, the more reviews and ratings they get. And I've only got one rating so far. It's a five-star one, which is good, but the more the merrier. And if you really like the work, please consider donating to a Patreon on a monthly basis. For a dollar a month, you'll get hundreds of hours of a bonus content that has not been made public. And uh, you will also, for $5 a month, get to listen to my uh, episodic coverage of Twin Peaks the, the moment it goes up. You don't have to wait for that to be released. On the next episode, we're going to take another break from the Ethan Hawke coverage and actually, I guess you could call it a soft launch of my uh, Twin Peaks cinema series that I've been doing on Patreon. I'm going to release a little of that for public audiences and every couple months, or every three months actually, it's, it's going to be a little longer at first, I'm going to share a little more of that coverage uh, going into 2020 until it branches off and becomes its own probably monthly podcast at that point. And this particular episode is going to cover Twin Peaks episode directors and the films they made. So Twin Peaks, besides David Lynch and Mark Frost, the co-creator, uh, had a lot of contributors. And these directors often came from the feature world and sometimes went back to it. A lot of them stuck with TV. But I looked at feature films uh, by each of them and uh, reviewed one briefly. These are more like film capsules, but I sort of compiled them into a full-length, uh, for this podcast, a full-length episode of about 15 to, to 30 minutes. So I'm going to share four of those directors' films in this, consider it sort of a part one of an ongoing series within a series. Those films are Halloween Town by Dwayne Dunham, Zellie and Me by Tina Rathborn, Now and Then by Leslie Linkaglatter, and The Escape Artist by Caleb Deschanel. Four very different films by directors who all contributed to Twin Peaks. And my approach to this series is I always look at the films in light of Twin Peaks. So I might talk about them on their own a little, but I also look at what are their connections. In this case, not just to Twin Peaks as a whole, although I do sometimes address that, but also to the specific episode that that director directed, which I find really compelling to do. So that's up next. We'll see you then. And thank you for listening. Tonight at 8, 7 Central, it's Halloween Town. Marty Cromwell's family can't be normal. Why? Sorry, I'm late. It's this. I'm leaving. I'm just realizing that I've spent my entire adult life trying to recapture the way I felt the summer of 1970. Hi. We're having a banquet. Grab a lobster. I want a job. 